Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 2 through 16. If you'd like to start turning there, you can. We title this sermon, or this uh, sermon series, 1 Corinthians, uh, Life and Church by the Book. And this passage has a lot to do with life by the book. That question of how then shall we live? And Paul continues to get at this. He's going to do a little bit less about, about sort of basic theology as we continue on through the, first, the book of 1 Corinthians and continue to hammer on practice. He's going to say, this is how you should live. And this passage, though difficult, gets at a lot of that. So, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Why don't you all stand with me as we read God's word this morning. We confer upon God's word the, the honor and the respect that it deserves as his inerrant, infallible word, the confession of faith that we have at this church says that it is the only infallible rule for all of Christian faith and life. We believe this wholeheartedly. It says this, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, says, I, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But, it's, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we, may, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, I come before you this morning, a man who is deeply confused by some of the things in this passage. Lord, we admit we are, we are not infallible as your word is, and so, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would illuminate your scriptures to us. That, Lord, we might take from this passage what, Lord, you have given us to take from it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand, help us to not only understand, but to apply the principles that Paul is speaking of in this passage. 
But Lord, we might not simply throw out this passage because it is difficult. But Lord, we might, we might accept it and love it because it is from you and because your principles are true. Lord God, help us in this. Help us, Lord, to live joyfully according to the creative ordinances that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to live joyfully as men and as women, different. Lord, and help us to do it joyfully unto your glory and for our good. We thank you for this. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. If you're, a, uh, if you're a pastor and you're preaching verse by verse through uh, the books, of, like certain books of the Bible, every once in a while you come across a passage that makes you just kind of scratch your head a little bit. This is one of those for me, and I'm just being honest with you this morning. It's easy to miss the forest for the trees in this passage. Questions arise. Is Paul only speaking in the context of corporate worship? Is he speaking of the home? Is he talking about everywhere? Does, it apply, does this only apply to wives, or is the Greek word translated wives in the ESV simply supposed to be translated women? Does that change anything? How long is too long for a woman's hair? How short is too short for a woman's hair? How long is too long for a man's hair, I should say? What's up with the symbol of authority, and why is it because of the angels? If y'all were reading along with me and you were having the same questions I did too as I began study in this passage. And to be honest with you, there are some of these that are unanswered for me. The list of questions goes on and on, and I believe that, that I, I have developed good answers for some of these, but others I, I just don't. And there are some serious interpretive difficulties in this passage. In light of that, I'm going to resist the temptation this morning to try to come up with shaky answers for every possible question. Is that okay? I want to be intellectually honest with you. I want to tell you that I don't know everything about this passage. In fact, any given passage, you have to understand that I do not know everything about every passage. I do my best to comprehend it, to understand the depth. But this passage in particular is difficult. Of course, the main question people want answered here is, does this mean women have to wear shawls or veils, especially in church services? Or perhaps less common, does this mean men can't wear hats? And in studying this passage, I happened upon several views of how to apply these verses. At one end of the spectrum, I found people saying, we should discard this passage outright. Just leave it behind. Because they were merely for a certain people at a certain place at a certain time. Those interpreters find no perpetual binding principles in these verses. Now, I do not believe this group is being faithful to the text. And they are in error. In verse 8, Paul appeals to the creative order to make his argument. Any passage that references the state of things before the fall should make you kind of sit up and pay attention. The author is describing not just how things were, but he's describing what is closest to God's design. And so we have to sit up and take notice. And we should do everything that we can to adhere to God's good design. Because of this, there must be, because there's this link to the creative order, there must be some underlying principle that binds us even today in this passage. The question becomes, okay, well then what is it? What is the principle in this passage? 
there's another end to the spectrum here. The one side of the spectrum says we should just toss this all out. We can read it, sure, but it's not really there for our good. It doesn't help us in any sort of practical way. The other end of this spectrum, I found people who made a doctrine out of head coverings. In those churches, head coverings are required for women and banned for men. End of story. I admit I'm sympathetic to this view. Even if I don't subscribe to it personally, I'm sympathetic to it because I see the desire to live strictly according to the Bible. And that is a good desire. The people I've seen talking about head coverings, especially the women who speak about these things, seem to have a love for God and God's word, and they seem to truly desire to follow what he has said. If you end up in this second camp after studying this passage, and I do encourage you to do so after this sermon, go home and study it. You end up in that second group where you're like, I do think this is binding. You will hear no critique from me. My only request is that you don't let the consciences, or that you do let the consciences of, of others be free in this matter. So if you think that that's perpetually binding, then you are free to practice, but please don't bind the consciences of others in this. Because my view in this passage lies somewhere in between. I want to be clear that I am preaching today from a perspective on this passage that sees both binding principles and cultural practices. And those binding principles drive cultural practices. So again, the question remains, what are then the driving and binding principles in this passage? This, I believe, is the most important question we can ask of this text. As difficult as it is, as many questions as it may give us, we should ask the more important question, what are the principles being applied in this passage? I believe there are four things that we can get out of this passage. First, I believe this passage teaches us that the practices of other churches can and perhaps even should inform what we do. This is a minor point, I admit. This is from verses 2 and 16. I only put this first because, again, it's a minor point, but it is valuable in the grand scheme of the passage. In verses 2 and 16, Paul makes a reference to traditions given to the Corinthians and then practices or customs in the other churches. Read with me from 1 Corinthians 11.2. Now I command, commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, it's certainly possible that these quote-unquote traditions that Paul speaks of in verse 2 are inspired teachings. But given the context, I'm persuaded to believe that these traditions included non-inspired ways that these Christians were taught to sort of do church. After all, why would these churches Paul planted be started by him without some sort of cultural framework, some sort of basic idea of how they should organize themselves and how they should live? So many modern Protestants get all riled up of the ideas of being traditions, of following traditions and them being evil. <laughs> but what we see here is Paul commending the Corinthians for honoring the traditions that were given to them. Here at Mosaic, we aren't trying to reinvent church. I see a lot of people talking about that kind of thing. That was really popular about 10 years ago. Reinvent this, re-something else. Re was like the, bind, like the thing to do in church. You remember this movement? Some of you don't. I do. There was re-everything. Re-lit, re-invent, re-all the different conferences. We're not trying to reinvent church here. We happily 
stand upon tradition in many areas, some more modern, some ancient. Mosaic is a church that finds its theological roots in, a, in the Reformed Baptist tradition. We value the theological work done by the Reformed and particular Baptists of the 17th century, as well as the Puritans and the Congregationalists who came after them. That's our tradition, yet we are not traditionalists. Traditionalists treat their tradition as if it were Scripture itself, unwilling to move or change. Instead, we at Mosaic cherish the theology and practice of the saints who have gone before us, and we modify those practices as appropriate. It would be unwise at best to discard the traditions of others altogether, because in doing so, we would lose 2,000 years of church history. Their practices, their experience, their thinking. No, we value tradition because it benefits us. We remember that it's fallible, but it must often be changed based on external factors. So we take what is passed down to us through the centuries and we do our best to honor it while continuing to be soundly biblical. That's non-negotiable. And also effective in the context of our culture. In verse 16, Paul gives another guardrail for figuring out what it means to do church by the book. He says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Like as mentioned of traditions here, Paul once again calls the Corinthians to consider the practices of other churches around them and see that they in this circumstance are the outlier. Now the assumption here is that these other churches were living in harmony with good doctrine. You have to make that assumption. Otherwise, Paul, why would Paul say, hey, Corinthians, look around to the other churches, right? So I realize that's a difficult thing for us in our context, but I think it's wise to ask whether we stand with other gospel-believing churches that have good theology and good practice, or if we stand in contrast to them. That is not necessarily to say that all of the contrast is necessarily evil, but in those areas where we contrast, we should direct our attention to them and ask why. Why are we different? It could be that we have good and biblical reason for diverging from what is normative, but it may also be that we have unknowingly stumbled into error and we need to reconsider our practice. That was the case for the Corinthians. They were an outlier amongst their peers and they were being called to consider the incongruity of their practice against their professed beliefs. And while this was true in a great many areas, Paul specifically deals with it here in relation to manhood and womanhood, which leads us nicely into the, the second major principle that I believe we can pull out of this passage. This passage teaches us that there is a creative order and that it is binding. Look, at, look with me at uh, verse 3, which is really the key to unlock all of the principles from this passage. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We're going to come back to that last phrase for just a moment, but consider the first two. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband. This is going to rub some of you the wrong way. I know it just is what it is. You've been taught that women are equal to men, strictly equal to men in every way, and that there is no distinction except biology. Maybe you've even been taught 
that biology doesn't determine your sex or gender. At the risk of being canceled, I will say this. Men and women are not strictly equal. Now y'all are quiet. Biology says so, and so does God's word. If men and women were strictly equal, they would be fully interchangeable, and that is not the case. Biology determines your sex and gender, by the way. As I understand it, sex is biological and gender is sociological, and the this, this two have sort of fallen out of sync in our, uh, in our culture, but they're intrinsically linked. Just want to be clear about that. Male is male, female is female, sex and gender all in one thing. There are obvious differences between men and women, aren't there? I used to be able to say you could ask any seven-year-old, but I suppose with the culture at large being the way it is, uh, maybe I have to say most seven-year-olds, you could ask them and they would know what the difference between a man and a woman is. Most kids can still tell the difference. Some have been indoctrinated by this world, but most children can tell you what the difference between a man and a woman is. Only men can be fathers, biologically and sociologically. Only women can be mothers. Only men can be husbands. Only women can be wives. Different stuff, not strictly equal. Now somebody's going to go, oh, are you saying that women are less valuable than men? No. In terms of salvation, and we'll get there in a minute, but in terms of salvation, in terms of value, no. We are equal. But when you start to say that men and women are strictly equal, that they are interchangeable in the context of the family, in the context of the culture, in the context of pretty much anything other than maybe technical work, you might have a problem. Throughout this passage, we are taught that there are distinctions. Heads covered or uncovered, hair long or short. Woman was made for man, man was born from woman. Men and women are different in both form and function, and that was God's design from the beginning. It's all quiet, still quiet. That's okay. Look at verses 7 through 10. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of gl and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I admit that this last phrase is difficult. I believe that what's being inferred to here is that those who look in, those who see the practice of the church and of the, these families that Paul is talking to, they should see the difference between men and women in the context of the church and in the home at the very least. In our passage today, Paul speaks of man, though, being made in the image of God. To be clear, this does not exclude the idea that woman is also made in the image of God. In fact, in Genesis 1.27, we find this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man, in this passage, refers to mankind. And then male and female refers back to 
man as in mankind. Thus, all human beings are absolutely and unquestionably made in the image of God. Yet Paul pulls out the fact that Adam, man, was created first and that woman was created afterward for a particular purpose. Genesis 1, 20 through 22 says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds in the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up uh, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we find that the man was created in the image of God to have dominion over every living thing on earth. That's Genesis 1.26. But the woman was created also in the image of God, but for the purpose of being a helpmate to Adam. This purpose does not change after the fall or in the New Testament. Paul is not being inconsistent when he writes elsewhere, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In terms of salvation, there is no distinction between male and female. In terms of biological and sociological function, however, nothing has changed since God made Adam and Eve. Yes, men you were created to lead. Biblical manhood includes qualities of dominion and leadership as well as sacrifice and mercy. Yes, women, you were created to submit and help your husband. Your value is not at all diminished by this calling because the third principle in this passage teaches us that submission does not speak to value or necessity. Look again at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This passage is fraught with difficulties related to the word head. If you're so inclined, please feel free to pick up a good commentary and study it. But that said, I am confident that this specific verse is clearly about submission. The head of every man is Christ. Let's start there. Men, if you thought that being created to lead when I just said that meant that you didn't have to submit, you've got a problem. We all submit to someone, don't we? Our bosses, the police officer that pulls you over, the elders of this church, if you're a member here. Even, and you're like, well, Greg, that doesn't really apply to you, does it? Yes, it does. Brandon and I practice mutual submission. And when we have more and more elders, we will submit ourselves to the body of elders. And even the body of elders submits then again to you because as members of this church, you could remove us. Leading well means knowing when, how, and to whom we should submit. Ultimately, we submit to Christ, who rightly claims lordship over our lives. He is our king and our God. Our lives are his to do as, with as he pleases. Rightly ordered, then, we will lead our wives and our families to see him more clearly each and every day through our love, our sacrifice, our mercy, our strength, our provision, and our perseverance. 
And then Paul goes on to say that the, the head of a wife is her husband. Again, this is a divisive phrase, I know it. But when a wife submits to a godly husband, it is a wonderful thing for everyone involved. Just as a man can be strong and submit to Christ, a woman can be strong and submit to her husband. It does not imply weakness. It does not imply a lack of value. As a husband, I will say that there is a sense of incredible joy and security in knowing that my wife is strong in areas where I am weak. Men can get an amen. She is creative in ways that I'm not. She's principled in ways that I'm not. I, I really mean this. I, I told her this the other day spontaneously, and she wouldn't let me forget it. She is truly God's gift to me. It is my greatest blessing in life to be her husband. I mean that. From the bottom of my heart, I mean it. And yet, as strong as she is, she submits to me, lovingly and willingly. And I believe her when she tells me how much joy and security she feels when she knows that I am there to lead her and love her the way that Christ loved the church. It's a blessing. Unless it be forgotten. There's a third phrase in this verse that makes it clear that submission is not a dirty word. So many people think that it is. It is not. Because that last phrase, the head of Christ is God. We believe and confess that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, of the same essence as the Father. Yet despite this equality in being and power, the Son willingly submits to the Father in the work of redemption. Submission is not a bad word. But men, this is not a call for you to command your wives to submit. This is a call for you to become men to whom your wives will happily submit. Women, this is not a call for you to hold submission over your husband's head until he gets it right. Take a submissive attitude toward him, pray for him, and watch him change. Watch him change. 1 Peter 3, 1-2, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is a call for all of us to follow the creative order, knowingly and joyfully, and knowing that in everything, husband and wife should both submit themselves ultimately to the headship of Christ and in his, his inerrant word. We need each other in our respective roles. I know this to be true. When I've abdicated my responsibility to lead my family, it has led my family into chaos. And it has forced my wife to become a leader of our family when she should not have been. I forced her into that situation because I abdicated my responsibility. It's not about ruling your house with an iron fist. It's about sacrificing and loving and leading like Christ did. And when you cease to do so, men, what do you expect when your life goes topsy-turvy? We need each other. 
in our respective roles. Nevertheless, it says in uh, 11 through 12, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. Society breaks down when the family and society ceases to recognize men as men and women as women. We need godly men leading well with godly women submitting to their husbands in love. Nothing could be more countercultural or more Christ-affirming in a culture where everything is being turned upside down. In fact, culture leads us, this idea of culture leads us to this final principle that I believe we can derive from this passage. And that is that this passage teaches us that Christians should celebrate, not just accept, but celebrate their distinct roles as men and as women and adopt culturally defined representations of manhood and womanhood. This is where the rubber meets the road. Let's read it. Verses four through six first. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And then, starting in verse 13 through 15, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but woman, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For, for her hair is given to her as a covering. I'll note here that when Paul says, does not nature itself teach you, uh, the word translated nature there has more to do with common sense Right, common understanding than nature itself. But this is where the rubber meets the road for Paul's encouragement toward head coverings for women, isn't it? I freely admit that head coverings are clearly the practice uh, that Paul intended to press upon the Corinthians in this passage. He wanted women to prophesy and pray with their heads covered and men the opposite. But why? Why? This is the biggest question I wrote in my notes in this passage. Every single verse that I read, why? Why this? Why that? Why did he say it was wrong for men to pray with their heads covered? Why head coverings? If this was so important, why aren't head coverings mentioned anywhere else in the entire New Testament? Why? But I believe I, I have, as much as I have questions, and I do have questions, I believe I have a few clear answers. To me, the, fewer, the clear direction that Paul's argument here is that men should look, behave, and function as men. And women should do the same. They should look, behave, and function as women. This is why men are, not told, are told not to wear long hair in verse 14. In that time and culture, it was unknown for a man to wear long hair. And if he did, he was thought of as effeminate, as trying to adopt a female sort of persona. You thought the gender confusion was new. It's not. These men that were wearing long hair were seen as effeminate. They were seen as, as people trying to become somewhat female. 
And it's not that long hair was inherently sinful, though. It's that it was a sign that this man had abdicated his role as a man. It was an external outworking of that. Men are told not to cover their heads in prayer in verse 4 as well. It's the same thing. Men who covered their heads in prayer with like a shawl or something like that, they looked like they were trying to play the part of women in the culture because it was common for women to cover their heads. It was not common for men to do so. It'd be like a man wearing a dress now. You kind of go, oh, that's not okay. That's not normal. That's, that is not male clothing. It's the same thing. And so Paul encourages the women of Corinth to embrace femininity and men to embrace masculinity, not only in their hearts and in the interior of their lives, but before others. Again, this is why I believe he says, because of the angels. Now, admittedly, the word angel is fraught with some difficulty because angel can simply mean messenger. And so it could have been that people were coming to this church from elsewhere, and they were looking in and going, why do the men look like women? And why do the women look like men? What's going on? Why is everything upside down? It may be that the angels who assist us in worship and who minister to us and who minister to Christ in those times that that they are looking in as well. I don't know. But I, what I do know is that others are looking in, whether spiritual or, or physical people, they are looking in and they're going, this is disordered. What's wrong? And so Paul encourages the women of Corinth to embrace femininity and men to ingr- embrace masculinity. And for them, this included long hair and head coverings for women. After having studied this passage, I am not convinced that head coverings are a binding principle for us today. These were cultural customs practiced in the first century around Corinth and elsewhere in the Greco-Roman world. If this practice had been mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, I might think otherwise, but I believe that head coverings were the way that Paul was commanding the Corinthians to embrace biblical gender roles. However, I am convinced that we should be men and women determined to practice godly manhood and womanhood. And further, anyone who looks into our lives should see it clearly. Women, if you determine that wearing a head covering of some kind is is the, the way to do this, please feel free to do so. Only let it be a sign of submission from your heart, not a sign of rote obedience. Because if all you get out of this passage is, we should wear head coverings, you've missed the point. Let it be an outworking of your heart. Likewise, men, if you choose not to wear hats in worship, that's up to you. But don't do it simply because that's what you're supposed to do. Let it be a sign of submission. Let it be a sign of submission to Christ. Most of all, though, men and women alike, embrace your God-given gender roles. Men, be godly men. Don't be boys. Man, this is a problem in our culture. Don't be boys. Look, I know, I know. I'm going to say this out loud because I know y'all are thinking it. Inside, I know you're like a little five-year-old, all right? A, like all your jokes are dirty, all right? And B, 
you are scared out of your mind. I know it. Men, I know it. Maybe you don't know it, but I know it. But that doesn't mean we should act like children. We should act like men. Let's lead our wives. Let's seek after God first. My goodness, if we would just do that, we would lead in seeking God, looking for Him, praying to Him, going through the Scriptures. If we would lead in that, you don't have to lead in perfect knowledge. Your wife may know more than you. That's okay. But don't just get lazy and go, well, she can handle it. Seek Him in His Word. Be in prayer. Worship. Lead your family. She may know more than you, men. She may. Let her speak at times in your family. Yes, amen. But lead your family to the point where they can learn from the Scriptures. Lead your children to listen to your wife as she speaks to them and helps them to understand things that maybe you haven't yet understood. That's okay. But lead them. Put first things first. Just because you're a leader doesn't mean you have to know everything perfectly or do everything perfectly, but put first things first for everyone in your household. Women, be godly women. Be prayerful. Be supportive. Man. Men, how, how like, look, I, I'm speaking from a man's standpoint because I'm a man, all right? How much more joy is there in life when you know that your wife is supporting you and loving you? This is the greatest blessing in the world. You should take on those roles and, and love them, cherish them. I know this command seems harsh to some especially those outside of Christ. In fact, I would argue it is near to impossible to do what I'm asking you to do outside of Christ. Because look, if you aren't following Him, if you don't know Him, it feels like you're going to lose something if you practice submission. And men, you are going to be tempted to just abdicate. If you're outside of Christ, that seems like a good idea. Why not let somebody else do it for you? Why not? But if you're in Christ, think about it this way. If you're in Christ and you have, en you have entrusted Jesus with your eternal soul, you've trusted him with your eternal soul, where you're going after this life, you've entrusted everything you are to him, and you say yes and amen to that then why do you look at other areas in your life and go well i can't trust him with that why no but if you are in christ you can trust him with all of it all of it you can seek after that godly creative order you can practice that in your lives joyfully knowing that he is trustworthy, knowing that he has designed all of these things not for your harm, but for your good. Do you know that, Christian? He has designed everything for your good. 
The world's going to say it's wrong. But our joy in obeying Christ will show them that it is not. All these people that not only invert gender roles, but abolish them altogether and who are trying to make gender fluid and all that kind of stuff, okay? All of that. Look at those people's lives. On the outside, they look happy. They're like, oh yeah, I'm better than I ever have been. Man, there's so much pain. There is so much hurt. And it only gets worse as they go further down that rabbit hole. There is joy in the godly order. There's joy in it. The gospel changes everything. Place your faith in Jesus. Trust him, yes, for the forgiveness of your sins, but don't stop there. Trust him in everything, everything. The road's not easy, but it is good. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.